I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 1.12, Agrippina Minor, Daughter and Sister. I'd like to start off this week by thanking everyone who has been sending in new show suggestions. I've had everything from female Vikings and mistresses of Louis XIV to Chinese empresses and the Medici queens. A wide range there. There are some very interesting ones in there too that I'll be keeping in my pocket. Please, please do keep them coming. Remember that you can keep up with all the latest news about the show on the Facebook page and get in touch with me at theotherhalf at gmail.com. If you're new to the show, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Agrippina Minor is a character that has been around for some time in our story. She first showed up in episode 1.8 in the sixth and final episode on Livia Drusilla, and has featured in every single episode since. She is a towering figure astride the early empire, as dominant over the third generation of the Julio-Claudians as Livia had been for the previous two. Like Livia, she was a survivor, enduring a tumultuous childhood as well as exile in her early adult years and when she reached the top, she would prove herself to be a formidable political operator, and as ruthless an opponent as you would care to suggest. The major frustration when it comes to Roman history is that, while a great many histories were written, so few of them survive. Tacitus would have us believe that these were no great loss, slanted as they were towards the official line of the regime, but even if that were so, they would be useful. The dream with any of these shows would be the survival of any writings by any of their subjects, and with Agrippina we might have hit the jackpot, as we know that she wrote a set of memoirs. Tacitus claims that he saw them, and that she, quote, left a record for the posterity of her own life and the misfortunes of her kin. But they have not survived, much to my chagrin. This means that we are left with many of the same histories that you have become used to, mostly written decades after her death. 
These sources tend to vilify her, portraying her as a scheming, murdering she-wolf. If you've been enjoying some of the colourful caricatures from people like Tacitus, Suetonius, and Cassius Dio, there will be plenty more where they came from. Sources claim for Agrippina a list of victims that could rival Livia's, and a relationship with her son that made her predecessor's relationship with her son look completely harmonious. More recent study has fleshed out her life, matching the ancient writers with other pieces of evidence, and thus revealing in Agrippina a complex woman, worthy of celebration and condemnation, not unlike any figure at the top of Roman society at the time. But where Agrippina really comes into her own is that her life saw her see the full amit of the human experience. Her highs and lows are like none other. The story of her life is quite the ride, so without further ado, let's get into it. We've covered bits and pieces of her life in previous episodes, but since they were so spread out and happened a while ago, I'll start from the beginning. Julia Agrippina was born on the 6th of November 15 CE in Ara Ubiorum, modern-day Cologne in Germany. Her parents were Germanicus, whom you may remember as the grandson of Livia and great-nephew of the Emperor Augustus, and Agrippina Major, the daughter of Augustus' great friend Marcus Agrippa and his daughter Julia. Just look at the number of links there to the Emperor Augustus, the founder of the imperial dynasty and future Roman deity. Agrippina was about as purebred a Julio-Claudian as it is possible to be. She was the fourth of six children born to Germanicus and his wife, and the eldest daughter. We've talked about them a couple of times, but to recap, they were in order. Nero, Drusus, Caligula, Agrippina, Drusilla, and Lavilla. She had been born while Germanicus was on campaign, and so, as soon as she was well enough, she was sent to the imperial palace back in Rome to be raised in safety. She therefore would not have seen much of her father, as he died slash was murdered when she was only four. Let's quickly recap what happened there. Remember that Tiberius is on the throne, with his mother Livia pulling the strings behind him. He had been forced to adopt Germanicus as his son and heir as part of the succession settlement that had seen him come to the throne, but had become suspicious and paranoid as Germanicus grew more and more popular. When Germanicus died suddenly while in the east, his supporters cried foul, but no one did more so and louder than his wife, Agrippina Major. Now we know almost nothing concrete about the younger Agrippina's childhood in this period, other than that she grew up with her siblings in her mother's household. Her formative years, though, would have been absolutely dominated by the political turmoil taking place all around her. No one had a greater impact on Agrippina Minor's life than her two parents. While her father had died while she was still very young, His status as a great conquering hero, cut down by a jealous emperor in his prime, was extremely powerful. She then spent her childhood being raised by a mother who saw the imperial throne as her family's birthright, that it had been stolen from them by Tiberius and Livia, and that it was her duty to wrest it back from them and win it for her children. You can certainly see where Agrippina would have got her worldview from. The sources tie themselves in knots describing Agrippina Major, because while they disliked the fact that she was an independent woman who sought political power, they also hated Tiberius and Sejanus, who were her sworn enemies. They describe Agrippina as being proud, haughty, and quick to anger, and yet they don't overtly condemn her actions, even though they would later castigate her daughter for repeating them. 
it really does go to show the extent to which bias in the sources colours our view of history. Tacitus describes Tiberius calling her, quote, a woman lusting after power with no sense of right or wrong, one whose female limitations have been replaced with masculine ambitions. Thus, he's not going so far as to put his own names to these accusations, but Tacitus still wants to put them out nonetheless. What this tells us about Agrippina, then, is that she was willing to engage in traditionally masculine spaces without fear. She even briefly took temporary command of a detachment of Roman soldiers while in Germany, when they were hit by a surprise attack. The elder Agrippina, then, was bold, courageous, ruthless, and there is no doubt that those qualities rubbed off on her eldest daughter. Yet, as we shall see, she learned from her mother's mistakes as well. As he lay dying, Germanicus had begged his wife not to go after Tiberius and Livia. It was too dangerous, they were too powerful. But Agrippina Major was a true Gryffindor, for better or worse. She was afraid of no one. She made it very clear whom she blamed for the death of her beloved husband, the man who truly deserved to rule Rome, not the fool that had ordered that murder. Her masterful public relations campaign forced Tiberius to put his friends Piso and Plancina on trial. Livia intervened to save Plancina, but Piso was forced to commit suicide in order to save the family name. After the death of Tiberius' son Drusus a few years later, the succession to Tiberius was thrown open, and Agrippina Major saw this as her chance to fulfil her family's destiny. But in this effort, she was opposed by Tiberius's nefarious Praetorian prefect, Sejanus, who had, of course, his own designs on the throne. Their power struggle saw many of her friends and allies sacrificed on the altar of her family's supposed destiny, as they were systematically targeted and then either exiled, executed, or forced into suicide, as Sejanus and Tiberius sought to curb the machinations of Agrippina. She must have known that her pursuit of power for her children was causing all around her untold misery, but she would not relent. But the worst was yet to come for Agrippina Major. In 29, Sejanus managed to persuade her second son, Drusus, to turn against her eldest son, Nero, by promising to make him heir. Later that year, Livia, the last person in power who was protecting Agrippina Major, died. Almost immediately after, Tiberius accused Nero of sexual depravity and Agrippina as being overly ambitious. Both mother and son were exiled to separate Italian islands. After four years trapped there, with no hope of being freed, Agrippina starved to death, either forced to by her captors or of her own doing. Her eldest sons did not long outlive her. Nero committed suicide, while Drusus was double-crossed by Sejanus and starved to death in prison. This was the backdrop of the childhood of the four youngest children of Agrippina Major and Germanicus, who were, to remind you, Caligula, Agrippina, Drusilla and Lavilla. All they had known in their young lives at this point was fear, ambition, intrigue, treachery and death. It is no wonder they all turned out the way they did. The only positive that comes out of Agrippina Major's death is that there is now only one Agrippina alive, so I can drop the suffix finally. As I said earlier, the sources are completely silent on the younger Agrippina's childhood. There is a nine-year gap between the death of her father in 19 and the next news of her in 28, which was that the 13-year-old Agrippina was getting married. She would have had no hand in the choice of her husband, and nor did her mother. 
No, this was a match arranged by Tiberius. The emperor had a very definite agenda with the men to whom he chose to marry his adoptive daughters. All three of these girls had impeccable Julio-Claudian credentials, and thus any man married to them would have had his imperial stock raised. But keeping them unmarried had its own risks attached as well. And so for their husbands he sought men of solid noble birth, but who had some obvious flaw that would disqualify them from ever having a chance of challenging for the throne. The man he chose for Agrippina was Gnaeus Domitius Ahanababus. He was about 30 years old, more than double the age of his new bride, and was a member of the extended Julio-Claudian family through his mother Antonia, who was the granddaughter of Augustus' sister Octavia. This made them first cousins, though such a trifle rarely bothered the Julio-Claudians. On a side note, is it just me, or is everyone seemingly related to Octavia? Through his paternal line, he could count a number of august ancestors, including a number of consuls. But most importantly, they were also exceedingly wealthy. So he definitely had the noble chops to be seen as worthy of Agrippina. But he was also a nasty piece of work, who had no real base of support. He is said to have executed one of his freed slaves for not drinking as much as he had been ordered to, apparently deliberately ran over a child with his chariot for no apparent reason, and gouged out the eye of a political opponent in the forum following a disagreement. Now, some of these accusations may be exaggerated, as the sources seek to make a connection between Domitius and his son Nero, whom they all hated. But while these accusations are disputed, there is little doubt about the fact that he was an unscrupulous person when it came to money. Like most exceedingly wealthy men, his main goal appears to have been the accumulation of more and more of it. He screwed over anyone he could in pursuit of profit, cheated his bankers, and even skimmed off the winnings of chariot races. This all meant that he was never really a serious player in the political game, and that seems to have suited him just fine. He never really had ambitions in that area, to the great consternation of his mother, who wanted him to use his position to continue to add glory to the family's august name. So that was Domitius. But now that she has become a woman, albeit a young one, it is worth now talking about what her husband would have seen when he married his wife. In terms of appearance, the sources are pretty uniform in calling her beautiful, and we know from reports from her life that she was very physically fit. Sadly, though, we only have two likenesses of her from coinage, and they don't edify us greatly other than the fact that she had a prominent nose with rounded facial features. However, what we can glean from this is that she was not actually a great beauty. And that is actually quite interesting. Cultures at various points in history tend to have different viewpoints on the merits and importance of beauty. Medieval and early modern Christian writers tended to equate beauty with divine favour, and so the better looking you were, the more saintly you were. This indeed is more or less passed forward into the present day. Studies have shown that even now we tend to trust people we think of as attractive, and distrust those whom we do not. This is why evil witches, for example, are always portrayed as being haggard, warty old women. For the ancient Romans, on the other hand, at least in this period, Beauty was often distrusted. They feared the manipulative power of attractive women, who could use their disarming looks and loose morals to ensnare weak-minded men. Now we know that Agrippina would grow into being a powerful and manipulative political operator, but she did not use any cliched notions of beauty to do so. 
She used her intelligence, charisma, and the powerful sense of her own lineage to do so. Qualities, of course, that had been instilled in her by her mother. The marriage to Domitia seems to have afforded a degree of protection for Agrippina, as she was left relatively untouched by the tumult of the next few years that saw her mother and two eldest brothers dead, as well as their enemy Sejanus and much of his faction. All while this was happening, her sisters were married, in 33, again to rather unpromising men. Drusilla to Lucius Cassius Longinus and Livilla to Marcus Vinicius, both men who had no real interest in pursuing political careers. In short, Tiberius did a really good job in stymieing any potential threat from the three sisters during his own reign. This is shown by the fact that Agrippina mostly disappears from the historical record for the next nine years. But there is one tantalising little episode that gives us a taste of the measure of Agrippina. In the year 37, she was 21 years old, and there was a scandal in Rome. A famous courtesan was indicted on a charge of immorality, along with three of her lovers, one of whom was Domitius. Now, these sexual misconduct trials are almost always a front for something politically motivated, so it is highly likely that this was the same. Remember that Tiberius' regime was absolutely obsessed with stamping down on any hint of opposition. As the emperor was ailing at the time, he was particularly focused on ensuring an orderly succession. The other two accused were both well-connected, ambitious men, but it seems that the main target of the prosecutors was Domitius, whom they alleged was planning on taking the throne for himself. In the end, Tiberius' timely death ended proceedings, and of course we know that Agrippina's brother Caligula took his place, but this tells us something very interesting. Remember that we were told that Domitius wasn't at all an ambitious man, and yet here he is, making the greatest gamble that anyone could make. Treason is a succeed-or-die gambit, after all. It doesn't seem to make sense, unless it was because Agrippina had goaded him into doing it. His mother had failed to prompt him into making a name for himself and aggrandizing the family name, but maybe his young wife did. It's pure speculation, but given what we know of her later life, it certainly seems very possible. Now, we all remember Caligula from the episode on his wives. He was the first Roman emperor to be assassinated by his own guardsmen because of his own vicious and cruel policies and threats to have pretty much anyone opposed to him killed. Yet, when he came to the throne, he was greeted as a breath of fresh air. The horrible Tiberius was dead, and now the son of the great Germanicus and noble Agrippina Major is on the throne. I cannot stress enough how much of a celebrity Germanicus still was, years and years after his death. He was Princess Diana and JFK all rolled into one. Sometimes it seems it does pay to die young. Since his family was such a crucial aspect of his own popularity and right to rule, Caligula spent a lot of time showering it with honours. His dead and maligned mother and eldest brother were repatriated back to Rome and given a lavish public funeral and reburied next to Augustus in his mausoleum. Games were thrown in his mother's honour and her likeness was placed on coins next to Caligula's. He didn't forget his sisters either. They received major privileges and perks. They were given the right to vestal virgins, without of course the constraints, emancipating them from male control. They were given the same sorts of honours that we saw Livy get, such as the right to sit in the front row at the games alongside the men, 
and were, like their mother, depicted on the coinage used by every Roman in the empire. Finally, they were included in the annual vows that soldiers and prominent office holders were required to give to the emperor. This latter bit was particularly extraordinary, as it was completely unprecedented. Emperors usually guarded this privilege above all others, as it was the ultimate sign that they were special, elevated above all others. This was arguably a higher honour even than being named Augusta. It meant that, for the first time, women were being elevated to a shared position of honour with the emperor. They did not rule, but they too basked in the mystique and majesty of the principate. These honours were not shared in any way with any of the sisters' three husbands. Domitius was forgiven for his alleged intriguing against Tiberius, but seems to have rededicated himself to his financial dealings and avoided the world of power politics. The year 37, then, was a big one for Agrippina. But we haven't got yet to the most important and ultimately influential event of that year. In December, she gave birth to a son. He was named Lucius Domitius Ahanobarbus, but we know him as Nero. Yeah, that Nero. It is notable that it took nine years for Agrippina and Domitius to have a child. There are, of course, all sorts of reasons for this. As we saw with Augustus's moral policies, the Roman nobility was famously unfecund and didn't tend to produce a whole heap of kids. And given that Agrippina would never give birth again, it may have been that she had difficulty conceiving. We can never know for sure, though, anything we do say would be a guess. However, in a rather unusual turn of events, we actually know a little about Nero's actual birth, as Agrippina included it in her memoirs, and aspects of it were copied by other writers whose works do survive. It was apparently a breach birth, an incredibly dangerous and painful procedure at the time, and one that supposedly marked the birth of an evil man. In fact, the birth of Nero is full of omens. Cassius Dio states, for example, that, quote, Signs had occurred indicating that Nero should one day be sovereign. At his birth, just before dawn, rays not cast by any visible beam enveloped him. And a certain astrologer, from this fact and from the motion of the stars at the time and their relation to one another, prophesied two things at once concerning him. That he should rule and that he should murder his mother. Agrippina, on hearing this, became so bereft of sense as to actually cry out, Let him kill me! Only let him rule! That is Dio, spoiler alert, engaging in a little foreshadowing. The reign of Caligula had started out on such a promising note. He was a young, confident and popular young man, whose main qualities seemed to have been that he was the son of Germanicus, and decidedly not Tiberius. But... As we know from previous episodes, things went south pretty quickly. First, his favourite sister Drusilla died. I've talked about it before, but historians have often pinpointed this as the turning point in his reign. He was utterly devoted to Drusilla, and had essentially made her and her new husband, Marcus Aemilius Lepidus, his heirs. Then his relationship with the Senate, which had been cordial at first, completely collapsed. He was not interested in their bickering and pompous declarations of their own importance. He was the emperor. He was already a god in his own eyes. They would bow down before him and despair. His behaviour became completely erratic, and he began spending money like water, 
frittering it away on lavish games to win him ever more popularity with the people and raising the salaries of the troops who continue to love him, all while heaping scorn and humiliation on the nobility. The sources claim that Agrippina and her sister Lavilla became victims of this too. Suetonius writes that, quote, He lived in habitual incest with all his sisters, and at a large banquet he placed each of them in turn below him, while his wife reclined above. When Drusilla died, he appointed a season of public mourning, during which it was a capital offence to laugh, bathe, or dine in company with one's parents, wife, or children. The rest of his sisters he did not love with so great an affection, nor honour so highly, but often prostituted them to his favourites. As with all things related to Caligula, this is probably an exaggeration, but for all we know, they may have some basis in fact. Caligula's relationship with his sisters does seem to have collapsed after Drusilla's death, and if he did humiliate them in ways similar to what Suetonius alleges, it may go some way to explain what happened next. This massive wave of treason trials and political repression was met by concerted resistance, and led, in 39, to the greatest crisis of Caligula's short reign to this point. Now, this plot is very confusing, but essentially, it seems that the commander of the Rhine legions, one of Rome's most powerful armies, heard news that he was next on Caligula's hit list. He was in no hurry to become another victim of his emperor's paranoid fantasies, and so planned to lead his troops in revolt. But he needed allies in Rome to help him, people with power and impeccable social standing. And he found them in Marcus Lepidus, Drusilla's widower, and her sisters, Agrippina and Lavilla. Lepidus and his sisters-in-law were close allies. Indeed, it is possible that he was sleeping with both of them at the same time. Certainly, it is alleged in multiple sources that, at the very least, he and Agrippina were lovers. Their part in the conspiracy seems to have had a lot to do with Caligula's recent marriage to Caesonia, his fourth and final wife, and the birth of their first child. Lepidus saw that his chances of inheriting the throne from Caligula were diminishing rapidly, and Agrippina was likely not thrilled with the prominent role that her brother was giving his new wife. She wanted to replace Drusilla as the most powerful woman in Rome, and wasn't interested in giving up the spotlight to some floozy. This wasn't just for her own benefit. She was already starting to plan for her son's future, and she only had one prize in mind for him. The ultimate prize, the imperial throne. We don't know any details really about the plot. Indeed, this been suggested that these were in fact two separate conspiracies, only that it was quickly discovered by Caligula's agents. Lepidus was quickly tried, found guilty, and executed, his throat being cut by one of the emperor's tribunes. To celebrate the capture and killing of the ringleader of the plot, Caligula sent three daggers to the Temple of Mars, which is why this has become known as the Plot of the Three Daggers. He also cracked down on anyone that he suspected of being in on the plot, and from this we get a good idea of actually how involved Agrippina was and how big a power base she had. A great number of senators that we know she was close to were purged in the aftermath of the plot. These included Ticolinus, a man we were talking a lot more about once Nero becomes emperor, and Seneca the Younger, both men whose careers would rise and fall with that of Agrippina, and whom she is alleged to have slept with. 
This suggests that not only was she highly involved in the planning of the plot, but maybe she was at its centre. If the reports that she was Lepidus' lover are to be believed, then it is highly possible that the endgame they foresaw was Lepidus' emperor, with Agrippina as his wife and empress, and Nero as the heir. If this was the case, this would not be the first time that she'd be willing to kill to fulfil her son's destiny. Agrippina was spared death, along with her sister by her brother, but that did not mean that she escaped punishment. Romans were obsessed by symbolism, none more so than Caligula, and so he found the ultimate way to humiliate his little sister. Now, as you'll recall, after Germanicus died, their mother had dramatically carried his body back to Rome, accompanied by loyal followers and greeted by supportive and mournful crowds all the way. Well, in a cruel parody of that, Caligula made his sister reenact that with Lepidus' ashes, carrying it from Mavania, where the plot had been discovered and they had been detained, all the way back to Rome, a distance of some 90 miles. Cassius Dio describes her as being forced to carry it in her bosom the whole way. Caligula wanted no one to doubt that she and Lepidus had been behind all of this. Agrippina and Lavilla had all of their money and property confiscated, and were exiled to the Pontine Isles, 20 miles off the coast of Campania, and a popular place for emperors to send political prisoners. Interestingly, these islands were rich in Homeric tradition, and were thought to be the ancient homes of either Circe or the Sirens, ominous associations, of course, for women accused of sexual misconduct. When it comes to imperial exile, there are two kinds. One is the comfortable kind, where you're kept well-fed and plenty of servants were around. The other is the bad kind, where you're essentially left under guard with nothing and starved to death. For Agrippina, it was the former, but it still would not have been easy for her. She was a social animal. She reveled in the political game and always had a wide circle of acquaintances and associates. To be left on an island with only her sister for company, as well as they did get along, must have made her stir crazy. Her mood would not have been helped by Caligula, who was apparently fond of sending her letters periodically, reminding her that he could have her killed at any moment on his slightest whim. One year into her exile, she may have gotten the news that she had become a widow. Domitius had managed to survive the post-plot purge, probably because his political ambivalence was well known and had wisely skipped town. He had the custody of Nero at this time, keeping him safe too from Caligula's suspicious eye. Domitius' death was of natural causes, without any suspicion of foul play, making him the only one of Agrippina's husbands that she is not accused of having murdered. And it is here, on her island exile, that we shall leave Agrippina for this week. Next time, we will see her return from exile to the brave new world that began after the assassination of her brother. It would not be plain sailing, though, as her feud with Messalina would see her abandon Rome again. But she would be back, greater and more powerful than ever before.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.